Sailors and Saints, I hope that you're well. Um, sorry that this video is late, but I thought, you know, doing something is better than nothing, and that, um, you know, I didn't have a video last week. I haven't really had the best week with my health. I'm still kind of recovering from things, but I was doing a morning meditation about discomfort, pain, and it sort of presented the message that regardless of what is going on with us and our bodies and our mental state, um, we can still connect to our souls and be a star of peace, be a being of peace, and healing happens on the vibrational wavelength of love is also another um, message that, not that meditation, but the same person, his name is Michael McIntosh, I really, he's one of my favorites on Insight Timer, and I think that if you can just get yourself to be in a state of peace and let go of resistance, at least we can remove the subjective layers of suffering that we create for ourselves and get out of the way of our bodies, which are very wise and sometimes just need time and the help of us not getting in the way. So that's my thought this Thursday. I'm going to continue with Vita Contemplativa, Byung Chul Han. We are in the midst of talking about waiting, a specific kind of waiting that is a contemplative waiting, not one that has anything to do with productive achievement society, which he's trying to sort of get us away from, but a waiting that is nourishing, that lets go of the goal that, you know, I really see him sort of secularizing Eastern spirituality. So let me know if you think that as well. And at the end of the video, I will give you more of an update um, on my life because I like chatting with you. Waiting also determines Orpheus's relation to Eurydice. That's probably not how you say her name. Tell me how to pronounce. You know what I'm trying to say, so <laughs> I'm gonna say it like that. Only in waiting is he close to Eurydice. He can sing for her, desire her, but not possess her. Her withdrawal is the condition of the possibility of his singing. Eurydice appears irretrievably the very moment that Orpheus worried that she might no longer be following him turns around to assure himself of her presence Eurydice embodies the realm of inactivity night shadow sleep and death it is fundamentally impossible to bring her into the daylight Orpheus owes his song his work Urve, precisely to death which is nothing other than the utmost intensification of inactivity Blanchot places desouvrement, meaning act inactivity, literally de-working or worklessness close to death. Night, 
sleep and death turn Orpheus into the one who is inert. Desoeuvre, desoeuvre, maybe? The one who is out of work. Artists owe their gift of listening, the gift of narration, to inactivity, to desoeuvrement. Orpheus is the primordial, primordial artist. Art requires an intensive relation to death. Only in being towards death does the literary space open up. Writing is always writing towards death. Kafka is, in a sense, already dead. This is given him, and this gift is gift is linked to that of writing. I think that's really interesting how Byung Chul Han puts the artist in the way of the artist on sort of a on the stage. I was gonna say on the pedestal, but that's kind of cliche. Um, like puts the spotlight on the artist. Um, I guess it all means the same thing. You know, having holding space for like the dreamers, the artists, the people who maybe are seen by productive achievement set society as maybe not mature or successful or responsible or adulting is a word that's come upon the stage lately. I think that that's really helpful and that's maybe an insight into how Han sees himself even though he's an academic. He's an academic with boundaries, we could say, or even resistances to being an academic in productive pro um, production achievement society. Um, so all you dreamers and artists and musicians out there just trying to follow the passion of your soul um han loves you as his example knowledge cannot represent life in its totality the fully known life is a dead life okay see this is why and someone commented you know why do you look up things in the middle of the video because I'm cold reading and right now I really need to know, even though the word might not come up again, the name might not come up again, I need to know how to pronounce what I'm calling Eurydice. Because I just, Eurydice? I don't know. Let's see. Eurydice. Oh, okay. I was so wrong. What is that? Eurydice. Eurydice. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. Eurydice. Eurydice. I love that though. Eurydice. Eurydice. Okay, thank you, British Oxford Dictionary woman. See, now I know. My life has changed. Okay. Um, and if you're still here, you weren't vastly offended, so thank you. Um, where am I? Okay, knowledge cannot represent life in its totality. The fully known life is a dead life. That's interesting. That sort of creates space for uncertainty and unknowing, which is a part, again, of the artist's um, journey. Sort of embracing ignorance, embracing uncertainty, being curious, kind of like the fool in the major arcana. This, that sort of place of beginning of childlike wonder of dressing in, you know, if you think about the tarot card, dressing in colorful garb and 
um, following butterflies and maybe almost like like stepping off of a cliff, you know, representing stepping off into an adventure. And if we are lucky and if we're conscious and, you know, seeking connection to our soul, I think we, we have the opportunity, we all have the opportunity to go through many heroes' journeys, many sort of um, life and, and death and rebirths in our, in our lifetime. You know, looking at the major arcana, it's like a spiral that's going, that's evolving and ascending in a sense, but um, somehow cyclically, um, not necessarily linearly. Uh, this, the spatiality of it is specifically cyclical so that each time you return to, you can return to the fool many times. Again, if we're, if we're focused and we're lucky in our lifetime, that beginner's stage, but on an elevated level in itself. I always think of when I'm like thinking of the of dialectic, like, um, Right now I'm in a class about Hegel and Marx and Nietzsche. I like that spiral and the movement and the spatiality of the major arcana. And I think it's wonderful, you know, um, not to restrict ourselves and shame ourselves and repress ourselves for maybe sometimes not knowing what's going on. And in that way, you know, if we break away from perfection, and dance with the chaos and you know the wasteland sometimes our movement in life towards death becomes more of an organic dance that has many um you know fluctuations and movements and um and it could look messy from the outside but if we can really again like let go of our resistance to that dance I think it can be infinitely more meaningful and pleasurable for the subjectivity of self and to allow oneself that freedom is I think what a lot of philosophers who talk about freedom are wanting Whatever is alive is not transparent to itself. It is precisely not knowing as a form of inactivity that enlivens life. In an aphorism from the phase of the so-called new enlightenment, Nietzsche declares ignorance to be the nucleus of life. Sorry, I was still thinking about the pronunciation of Eurydice. Eurydice. Let's all remember it together. Eurydice. Eurydice and Orpheus. So great. And I love that we're talking about Nietzsche here, just personally, because I am... Well, we just started Marx, so in a few weeks, we'll be on Nietzsche. So exciting. I got um, Walter Kaufman's book, Biography, which I know is very specifically, like has a very specific perspective, but I think it's 
like still good to read. So I have to read that again. It is precisely not knowing as a form of an activity that enlivens life. And again, I think if you haven't listened to the other lectures, um, don't get tripped up on that word inactivity. He means inactivity as a mode of being that is unentangled. So in an aphorism from the phase of the so-called new enlightenment, Nietzsche declares ignorance to be the nucleus of life. Okay, I love that. I finally registered it. <laughs> it is not enough to recognize the ignorance in which man and beast live. You must realize that they are. And you yourself must be determined to be ignorant. You need to understand that without this kind of ignorance, life would itself would be impossible. That only under this condition can a living thing survive and thrive. A great solid globe of ignorance must surround you. And, you know, just from what I've read of Nietzsche, which is actually quite a bit, um, he really wants to find those breaks or those spaces in a performance, let's say, of life that allows for a new growth. Um, it also kind of reminds me of Judith Butler and her idea, I use the word performance, inspired by her and her Gender Troubled and other books, because she says that in the performance of gender, like for instance, in my performance of my female gender, there will be spaces and breaks that reveal itself to be a performance. Not necessarily that my performance, any performance is in like the colloquial term untrue. It's not untrue, but it is a doing. And so because we are also human beings, there are spaces for something else, something new, something maybe that's unrecognizable gender-wise, maybe something that is seen as the inverse or the opposite of the female gender. You know, there's like, there's spaces for breath, there's spaces for, you know, hiccups, which, uh, you know, can be a great and needed for full expansion. We want to be expansive beings, right? That just feels better. And going back to Nietzsche, in terms of the genealogy of morality, looking for looking at history, using history and the historical um, sort of realities or manifestations of morality is used by Nietzsche as sort of and Foucault as by evidence uh, as evidence um, for the opportunity for change and seeing what was taken for granted. When something is taken for granted, it means that it's asserted without proof. And so if morality, even what is good or what has been good, has evolved and changed throughout cultures and peoples and centuries and millennia, millennia um, then that sort of validates or justifies almost, not exactly sure Nietzsche would say it like that, but I see him sort of doing this, 
it validates like taking another look and I think that's what philosophers are always doing with terms trying to define terms even like Aristotle with various virtues trying to figure out like well what is a logic what is a logical way to understand what a virtue is <clears throat> you know and he had his you know virtues of, of means the determined will to knowledge my time um the determined will to knowledge misses the innermost and deepest dimension of life see what Byung Shulhan is trying to get at he's trying to get at the beauty at the um at what I think Marx a lot is uh is also saying the the creative aspect this the aspect that can connect and be source you know Taoist language. It paralyzes vitality. Nietzsche would also say that life is impossible without inactivity, that it is the condition under which that lives, preserves itself, and flourishes. So it's a balance, you know? I think that we suffer when we go on, we move on either extreme of most things that's the you know buddhist wisdom of the middle way in Christ's on the marionette theater grace comes from ignorance involuntariness and inactivity the human dancer can never be as graceful as the marionettes in which in their own fashion follow only the simple law of gravity Rather than moving voluntarily, they hover above the ground. Their movements happen as if by themselves. In this way, they owe their grace to a not doing anything. It is precisely conscious, involuntary doing that robs movements of their grace. Kleist's text also tells the story of a young man who loses his gracefulness the moment that, seeing himself in the mirror, he becomes aware of his posture. I mean, isn't that the thing? When we become self-conscious of just the naturalness of our doing and being, that's when it trips us up, when we think about things too much. And that's why um, maybe it's a balance, I guess, inquiry with carelessness can be perhaps important to our well-being and survival. Carelessness is also important for people of any age. Grace and beauty lie beyond conscious effort. We can see the degree to which contemplation becomes darker and weaker in the organic world. We can see the degree to which contemplation becomes darker and weaker in the organic world, so that the grace that is there emerges all the more shining and triumphant. The ultimate, and I think, you know, also I didn't mention this, why he was talking about death earlier when he was talking about Orpheus and, oh, I forgot it, 
See, I, I also just wanted to say it so I could like remember. Eurydice. Eurydice. How can I write that on my, my book? Eurydice. I guess I don't need to. It's so great. Um, because uh, death, again, can be like a rebirth and it can be um, an opportunity for movement in another direction or on another level. The ultimate aim of practice is to reach a state in which the will abdicates. The, the master exercises the will away, and not doing is the essence of masterly skill. Activity reaches perfection in inactivity. Or again, in it's kind of that's kind of a paradoxical look. I'm gonna move this. It's like a cup of pens. Um, it's a paradox, right? Because activity reaches perfection by being non-active. And again, his non-active is this sort of Taoist, like flow with generative source. The happy hand lacks will and consciousness. And I just keep, I myself keep getting tripped up. So I don't know if any of you do when he says, you know, not conscious because in contemplative studies and mindfulness and the spiritual text that I read the whole that is the language that is used to indicate like where we need to go we need to be conscious so I really think we have to understand that Han is not disagreeing with that he wouldn't be disagreeing with that to but to become conscious in that literature is to connect with the flow of generative source. So it just goes to show that when you're reading, people can use the same word for like two different poles, but actually like they're meaning the same thing. <laughs> the happy hand lacks will and consciousness. Of practice, Walter Benjamin writes, to weary the master to the point of exhaustion through diligence and work so that as that at long last his body and each of his limbs can act in accordance with their own rationality this is what is called practice it is successful because the will abdicates its power once and for all inside the body abdicates in favor of the organs the hand for instance this is why you can look for something for days until you finally forget it then one day when you are looking for something else you suddenly find the first object your hand has so to speak taken the matter in hand and has joined forces with the object the will frequently blinds us to what is happening by illuminating what is happening, illuminating being at a point that precedes both will and consciousness, unintentionality and invol involuntariness, that always trips me up, make us clear-sighted. So this is interesting because Hegel talks a lot about the will um, and other philosophers too, which I maybe Kierkegaard, Schopenhauer talks about the world. Um, my mind is hazy because I can't think about anything except Hegel right now. Um, but I think many philosophers talk about the will, maybe not Schopenhauer, 
tell me in the comments. <laughs> um, as something very positive. Like Hegel, for instance, says that true recognition between two people is recognizing the free will and agency of each person, like each other's freedom, so that even in your interdependence, you retain a sense of self and understand that the other person also retains a sense of self and freedom. But here, Han says, the will frequently blinds us to what is happening. I think he might mean something different then. Um, then Hegel, I don't think he's disagreeing with Hegel. Um, well, depending on your interpretation. I think that Hegel, I mean, he says about the Lord and the bondsman that the Lord doesn't transcend his egoist nature. So I think that Hegel's ideal of a rational being of free will and agency would be also beyond the ego. Like you have to transcend the ego at the same time you're retaining a self. It's kind of like the super imposition of self with a big S and self with a small s. So I think that like Han could just use the word ego here and it would work. Alright, so I think I'm actually going to stop there because we are at 25 minutes and I just feel very inspired with what we have read already and I want to make the most of it. I think I'm going to maybe, no, I will start with the next paragraph next time. So yeah, I said that I would update you on life and actually now I don't think I want to. <laughs> yes, I want to. Um, have some tea and hydrate more. Um, I actually just woke up a couple of hours ago and then upload this so those of you who are waiting for a video or like to some for some reason to listen to my voice will have it. And um, yeah, so I will bore you about life next time. Thanks everyone so much. Please put your comments below and questions and thoughts. 